Hello, and welcome to Addressing Alaskans, a program capturing community conversations in South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel to different spots throughout our community and listen to local groups gathered to discuss what matters to Alaskans. This week, we're hearing from Dr. Donald J. Webbles. He's an expert in atmospheric physics and chemistry. Dr. Webbles has been published over 500 times, covering topics from Earth's climate and air quality to the stratospheric ozone layer. He'll discuss the Fourth National Climate Assessment and how those findings relate to Alaska. This talk was recorded at the Egan Library in Juneau on September 7th as part of the University of Alaska Southeast's Evening at the Egan Lecture Series. Dr. Webbles speaks next. Well, thank you all for, for being here, and thank you for inviting me. What I'm going to do tonight is, is tell you a little bit about the science of climate change. As Jim mentioned, I, um, I was lucky enough to be asked to, to lead uh, the scientists that reviewed and assessed the state of our science uh, from around the world, um, all the published literature, in terms of what impacts are happening on the Earth's climate system and, and what that means especially to the United States. I'll try to focus in, especially on Alaska, as I can. We had one chapter of the assessment that, that dealt entirely with Alaska and, and the Arctic. Um, but I, of course, won't have time to go into great, great detail. So just to start with, I thought I'd just mention, I'm sure you're probably all aware of this, there was a very contentious vote related to climate change in 2016 particularly August 16th, 2016, the people of Shimaref decided that they were gonna to have to leave um, their homeland and, and move. Uh, it's one of the very first events worldwide where we've seen um, people actually having to move because of the effects of climate change. In this case, because of the decrease in sea ice uh, as I'll show you, we've had about a 40% decrease in sea ice um, in the summer months uh, in, in the Arctic. Uh, that's resulting in a lot of wave action affecting coastlines up there and um, having a, a, a huge impact. So that uh, um, really brings it home that climate change is affecting us. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. That Climate change is, in fact, affecting all our pocketbooks in many different ways, and we just don't tend to realize it. So even those, you know, most people in the U.S., I would think, say um, that, you know, climate change may be happening, but it's not affecting me. Well, it is affecting you. If you pay taxes, it's affecting you. Um, so having Americans become climate refugees uh, was kind of startling. So. Um, back to the assessment process. Every four to six years, both internationally and nationally, um, scientists are asked to come together to assess the state of the science in terms of what it means in terms of the effects of, of climate change. You know, what is happening, why is it happening, and what is happening to society and ecosystems as a result. Uh, I've been a, uh, lucky to be asked to be a lead author on a number of the different uh, international assessments, including the, the first one uh, in 1990, uh, and also this most recent one in 2013. The sixth assessment is currently started. This was, this was the fifth one. 
Um, and it's a whole lot of work. And you don't get paid anything for it. I mean, it's all pro bono. Uh, when the scientists get asked to do this, we do it out of uh, service to our society, you know, to service to the society. Well, in addition to that, um, in 1990, the US uh, Congress passed the Global Change Act, signed by uh, President Bush, the first President Bush. And um, he, uh, and, and what this does is it requires that there be an assessment of what is happening in, to the United States in terms of global change. Uh, it was intended to be every four years, but it was quickly forgotten, and it wasn't until various presidents were sued that, that we finally uh, started doing it every four years ago. And now, uh, starting in 2009, we finally, finally got our acts together. We had the second, third ones. In, uh, in 2009, 2014, and now uh, this uh, was in 2017 for the first volume. The second volume will come out this year, which looks at the impacts on society. So I'm going to talk tonight about the first volume of the fourth national climate assessment, which relates to the science of climate change. So I'm primarily going to just talk about science. Um, and it uh, uh, is available on the web science2017.globalchange.gov. And if you look there, um, you will see uh, the full 470-some pages. There were 51 authors in total. Um, the, uh, we had 12 um, federal agencies involved. We had a, a federal steering committee uh, that kind of oversaw the thing, that chose you know, who, who would be selected, making sure they were quality scientists. Uh, who would do a good job with assessing the state of the science. And then we went through a whole series of reviews. I think this said uh, five reviews. Well, the five reviews was before the final review, which was when it was finally signed off through the White House by the agencies. Um, but the five reviews included multiple reviews by the, the 12 agencies, plus a public review um, where scientists could also review as they wished. But on top of that, we had a special review by the US National Academy of Sciences. And so it went through probably the most reviews that any scientific document has ever gone through. Uh, and, uh, and yet we managed to get it approved uh, in 2017 and, and, and out there um, to, towards, towards making a difference. Well, what does it tell us? This is the bottom line. Our climate is changing. It's happening right now. People always tend to think climate change is in the future. I don't have to worry about it, right? No, it's happening right now, and, it's, and I'll show you some of the evidence for that tonight. It's happening extremely rapidly. In fact, it's about 10 times more rapidly than nature tends to change the climate. Climate has changed in the past. We know that very well. But, uh, but it's primarily changed because of very slow ac moving activities. Um, changes in the sun, changes in the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere back millions of years ago because of, of uh, outflows of, of CO2 from uh, volcanic eruptions. Now that doesn't happen. Most of the effects of volcanic eruptions now are, are the sulfur that they put out and cause a cooling effect. And this changes in climate are leading not only to a warmer Earth, but it's having much larger impacts. You'll hear the media talk all the time about global warming. Well, 
Uh, it's funny because as a scientist, I've always called it climate change, and most scientists do. Um, we'll call it global warming because that's the term that's out there in the public. Um, but I get accused of changing the term from global warming to climate change because I have something to hide. I, I don't know what that is, but, uh, but apparently it's out there. Um, but it was actually the, the media that started using the term global warming uh, uh, 15 years ago or so. But it's so much more than temperature change. It's the changes in severe weather that are happening. And in fact, I do a lot of my research is related to how severe weather is being affected by the changes occurring in our climate system. It's making certain events more intense. On top of that, sea levels are rising, which are affecting our coastlines and are gonna likely have a very significant effect on coastlines over this century and perhaps and very likely beyond that. Why is this happening? It's happening because of, largely because of human activities. Naming the burning of fossil fuels, land use change, both of those contributing to, uh, and it's other pollution aspects, but, but primarily those two that contribute to increases in the amount of carbon dioxide and methane and some other gases in the atmosphere that are there in rather small concentrations, parts per million of concentrations. It means one, one, one molecule per million molecules of air. How can that make an effect? It's because those gases absorb radiation in what's called the greenhouse effect, absorb infrared radiation that otherwise would go to space. And this would be, if it wasn't for those gases, this would be a frozen planet. But because of those gases, we have life as we know it. But what we're doing is we're adding to the amounts of those gases. And that's really affecting the Earth's climate. If you go look at the basic physics, it's rather surprising how simple the processes are. You know, it's very complex to look at the actual rate of transfer and all that aspects, but just the basic concepts are quite simple. Our climate will continue to change over this century and probably beyond because we can't slow this down quickly enough. But we can have a large impact. I, don't, you know, I can easily leave you very depressed by the end of the evening by showing you all, everything that's happening, but I don't want you to be left that way. I want you to realize there is hope that we can do something about this and hopefully you'll see that as we go through this. Well, we have lots of different observations. Since the last assessment in, in um, 2014, we've had millions and millions and millions of new data that tell us that the climate is continuing to change, continuing to change very rapidly, and all the other things I told you. And it's not just temperature or land surface temperature, or sea surface temperature, or, or even tropospheric temperature, but it's the amount of heat in the oceans. 90% of the heat, the increase in energy that's happening because of the increase in these greenhouse gases is ending up in the oceans. And it's having a, uh, so it's kind of keeping us from having much worse climate change than would have happened otherwise. The oceans play a big role because they have a large heat capacity. Water vapor, Pacific humidity, is increasing in the atmosphere because as warm, the atmosphere warms, it can hold more water vapor. It's basic physics that it should be able to do that. In fact, that's what's happening. The amount of water vapor is increasing. Snow cover. Most of the glaciers in the world, not all, but vast majority, well over 90% of the glaciers in the world, uh, and things like sea, sea ice extent are decreasing um, throughout the world. Uh, 
an indicator of the warming temperatures. If we look at the global temperatures and the many, many thousands of observations made each day by thermometers, basically, well-controlled thermometers, um, and we put this on a relative scale because there may be some uncertainty in the absolute temperature, but we, we can knock that out by just looking at the, at the changes over time. We see that the temperature since about 1900 has increased by 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit. Well, that may not sound like much. 1.8 degrees, we get more than that in a daytime, right? Um, from night to day. But we're averaging over every day, over all parts of the Earth, and that's a thing that should vary very slowly. In fact, if we go back further in time, as I'll show you shortly, you see the temperature changed very, very little for thousands of years. Um, but now it's changing quite rapidly. So 1.8 degrees is large. If you go back and look at the last ice age, it was about 15 degrees Fahrenheit colder than current temperatures. Well, that's when we had ice covering most of, uh, most of the areas, I, I, well, certainly the area where I live in the Midwest was totally covered with ice. Um, but, and so that was really big impact. So 1.8 degrees is over 10% of that effect, and it's, you know, that's not negligible in terms of an impact. If you looked at every, five, every decade, look at those temperature changes over a decade, every decade for the last five decades is getting larger. We're gonna see that again this decade because uh, um, this, uh, as I'll show you shortly, the recent years have all been extremely high. To put, go back in time, taking that temperature record and go back 2,000 years now by using proxies for temperature, in this case for the Northern Hemisphere where we have the best data, you, you can see that the current temperatures, the red here is that same distribution I had before, the current temperatures are much higher than anything we've seen over the last 2,000 years. But yet, if you look at that temperature record from the proxies, you can see the medieval warm period. That's the period when Vikings were living in southern Greenland. You can see the Little Ice Age when it was colder than normal in most of, much of North America and Europe. Um, uh, and which we think primarily was due to large volcanic eruptions, by the way, which caused an effect on the oceans. Not because there was a modern minimum of uh, very little, very few sunspots, because we don't think that has much effect on the, uh, the solar flux. Now, if we looked at, going back to that, that, that record over the, the planet, and look at it across the planet, we didn't have observations in the Arctic or Antarctica going all the way back to 1900. We do have enough data to know that the Arctic has increased at twice the rate of the rest of the world. The oceans have a large heat capacity. They respond slower. The land is where we're seeing the largest effects. It's also where we're seeing these really large effects from severe weather particularly this year, seems to be a really bad year. Um, there's one area up there where you can see a net cooling, and that's off the coast of Greenland, where the fresh water that's getting into the Atlantic Ocean is um, causing a slowing, it's from, this is from the melting of, of Greenland and the melting uh, sea ice, is uh, causing a slowdown of the Atlantic Ocean and the circulation of the Atlantic Ocean. And that one little area there, uh, is, is actually cooling slightly as a result. Oh, by the way, 2016 was the warmest year on record. 
2017 and 2015 were essentially tied for second. And, and both of those years, far suppressed 2014, which was the third warmest year on record, uh, then 2010. 17 of the last 18 years are the warmest years on record for our planet since we started taking observations in the late 1800s and getting global representation. The one exception, by the way, was 1998, which happened to be a strong El Nino year and barely beats out one of the years uh, after that. But, um, but it was really unusual. So we're seeing extensive warming of our planet. If we look at the United States, you can see that the southeast is some, some areas of the southeast are, have a slight cooling. Um, sometimes I'll joke that, the, um, that one of the largest areas there uh, happens to be near Huntsville, Alabama, where some of the largest deniers of climate change live, and so it dare not <laughs> warm there. But, but reality, uh, we think it's more likely because of, of the deforestation that occurred in the southeast in the 19th century, followed by the reforestation in the 20th century. But it could also be related to some of the changes in circulation patterns, weather patterns that have also occurred since then. But there's definitely been a, a, a small cooling. Actually, if you look at the Midwest in certain seasons, such as the summer, um, spring and summer, we've actually had a cooling somewhere in the Midwest. There we know that it's related to uh, increases in soil moisture from the increase in precipitation we've had in the Midwest which is keeping, helping keeping things a little cooler than it would have been otherwise. So if you look at precipitation patterns overall, we've seen about a 7% increase in precipitation in uh, the United States, but it's not distributed evenly. Basically, we've seen a drying of the west and the southeast and uh, a wetting of the Midwest and the northeast. And, uh, and Alaska is kind of mixed. Some areas increase, some areas decrease. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage, Alaska Public Media. We're hearing from Dr. Donald J. Webbles, an expert in atmospheric physics and chemistry. He's discussing the fourth national climate assessment and how those findings relate to Alaska. We continue with Dr. Webbles. Looking at the Arctic, it's really the place where we see the largest changes on Earth. So you sit at the front line, or sometimes we call it the canary in the coal mine. Temperature changes, temperatures warming at twice the rate of the rest of the world. We're seeing an accelerated melting of multi-year sea ice cover. We're seeing a significant mass loss from, from glaciers, including those on the Greenland, Greenland ice sheet, reduced snow cover overall, and perhaps most important, perhaps to the rest of the world, the perma, as well as to, to uh, Alaska, is the permafrost melting down 12, 20 meters in, in a number of places. Where this melting over this century not only would increase the temperature and cause potential infrastructure effects as it's occurring already on roads and buildings, but could release methane and carbon dioxide into the atmospheres that would further add to the overall warming of our planet. It's one of those great tipping points that we don't understand very well that uh, is kind of a scary thing. People ask me, what, what, you know, what keeps you up at night about this problem? Well, that's one of them. That permafrost melting uh, is important. And my wife will be happy to tell you that I'm up a lot of nights. <laughs> 
She's always giving me a hard time about it. Um, so if you look at chapter 11 in that report, one of the key findings is that we are seeing a much more significant increase in temperature in the Arctic than in uh, the other parts of the world. And if you look just at, at Barrow, and I could try to say, I know I'll get it wrong again, Uchevik, um, um, Alaska, you know, it's 3.8 degrees centigrade. It's about twice that Fahrenheit in summer, in September. Almost seven degrees in October, 5.5 degrees in November. Again, it was all in centigrade. We're seeing a, an increase in that part of the world of more than one degree centigrade per decade overall. Um, it has been very dramatic and is having a significant impact in those regions. I'd mentioned the permafrost melting, and this just shows some of the data taken by, uh, by scientists um, since the 1970s, showing this overall an increase in the amount of melting of permafrost. So a very extensive amount of sea ice has been lost. Uh, but in general, if you look at, again, decadal timescales, which is the timescales we start talking about climate change, we really talk, talk about 20, 30 years is the, the time for climate. Weather's what you get. Climate's what you expect. That's based on a quote from Mark Twain. On top of all that, the, the ice melt season has also lengthened by 20 to 30 days over those last 40 years. And, um, and so it's not just that the fact that the ocean's warming, it's that the overall seasons are changing as well. So what this shows is the ice loss over Greenland. Uh, we've, been, we've seen about 2.81 uh, gigatons of ice loss every year. This is um, equivalent to about 140 million Olympic-sized swimming pools being lost every year in terms of water off of Greenland. So far, it's had a very pretty small effect on uh, sea level rise, accounting for about a quarter of the sea level rise. But the big concern is what will happen over this century as this ice continues to loss. So what this just shows is how much equivalent is being lost relative to 2002. This is based on the GRACE satellite. It's one of the wondrous satellites from NASA that can measure the gravity and from that determine um, the amount of ice that uh, was there over time. Barbara and I took a cruise um, six, seven years ago, roughly. And when we did, I was shocked to find that when you get to Glacier Bay National Park, that all this area that this big, huge cruise, cruise ship had gone up to, to so you can see the glaciers uh, calving, um, was in ice in 1941. It really indicates that, you know, the kind of dramatic change you've seen here in Alaska. And one of the findings of the uh, report was that it's very likely that human activities, very likely is our code word from greater than 90% likelihood, that human activities have contributed to observed Arctic surface temperature warming, sea ice loss, glacier mass loss, in Northern Hemisphere, snow extent decline. It's a high confidence statement. But um, I, I felt we were almost being too weak in saying it contributed because it's, it's largely causing those changes. 
Um, it's always funny. I always get approved of being an alarmist, but, uh, but in fact, uh, scientists tend to be pretty conservative in our statements. And, um, and so for us to make some of the statements you'll see here, um, that some of which are fairly strong, there'll be some more in a minute, um, means we've really learned a lot about what's going on. And it is human activities, for example, that is driving what we're seeing. One of the most interesting things that is happening is the changes in Arctic sea ice, particularly, and the changes going on in general in the Arctic, appear to be driving some changes going on at mid-latitudes and over the rest of the United States and over parts of Europe that we're still trying to understand. Jury's still out on this, but we think that um, the changes in circulation patterns, the fact that the the jet stream seems to have much larger waves in it than it used to, much larger extent over latitude than it used to, uh, and leading to very significant, some significant weather in the Midwest, for example, or the mid-latitudes, um, is related to what's going on in the Arctic. And we're still trying to understand that, but, but it seems to be the case. And, um, very interesting questions there about what is going on and how the Arctic is really influencing the rest of the world. It's a little bit like the tail wagging the dog because the amount of mass of air in the Arctic is smaller than um, those areas outside the Arctic. But, um, but some very important things going on here. Well, looking beyond the um, temperature change and some of these other things going on in the Arctic, and looking at extreme events. We're finding extreme events are increasing uh, throughout um, much of the world, and including the United States. One of the ways we know that is since 1980 for the U.S., and roughly the same time period worldwide by various uh, reinsurance companies, actually, people have been evaluating what are called the billion-dollar events. These are events that cause a billion dollars of effects in infrastructure. Nothing about human lives, just, just infrastructure. And it has to be a billion dollars or more. So if it's only 900 million, it doesn't make the list. It used to be when they started doing these, we would have two or three such events per year. That's those bars coming up. And uh, in some years, four, maybe five. Now we are typically getting well over 10, typically more like 14, 15, 16 such events per year. For example, we had, um, I think we had 16 such events in 2017, which isn't shown on here. We had one less than that in 2016. 2017, in fact, was the warmest, was the, was the year that had the, the largest impacts on, on American people. This is just for the United States. And so we're getting many more of such events. They're not all related to the fact that more of the population is moving to coastal areas. It's not just hurricanes. I can show you the same thing without hurricanes and you're still seeing the same effect. But you're seeing effects throughout the United States. And the net result is that we've had a total of $1.5 trillion impact since 1980 to the American taxpayer. So this is part of the proof that climate change is affecting your pocketbook and mine. Now you could say part of that was natural, yeah, it was. But the vast majority of that increase is related to the fact that the climate has changed.
This is Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage, Alaska Public Media. This week's show features Dr. Donald J. Webbles, an expert in atmospheric physics and chemistry. Dr. Webbles has been published over 500 times covering topics ranging from Earth's climate and air quality to the stratospheric ozone layer. He's discussing the fourth national climate assessment and how those findings relate to Alaska. This talk was recorded at the Egan Library in Juneau on September 7th as part of the University of Alaska Southeast's Evening at the Egan Lecture Series. Dr. Webbles speaks next. Well, what kind of changes are we seeing? In the United States, since 1960, we've seen an increase in the number and severity of heat waves. Worldwide, it's been since 1900, but in the U.S., we had the, the period of the 1930s when we had um, the, uh, the period, particularly out west, where we, we had uh, uh, significant warm events. And so, but since 1960, we've seen a fairly steady increase in the United States. Cold waves are decreasing. So, you know, that's one of the, I guess, good things, and that cold waves getting really bad cold periods are, are decreasing in number. Doesn't mean we don't get them. They do happen. We had one this last winter in Illinois. Um, but we're having less of them than we used to have. More precipitation. Remember I told you the, the, when it's warmer, the atmosphere holds more water vapor? Uh, well, that leads to more precipitation. And precipitation tends to come out as larger events. So when you, can, when you can build up this large amount of water vapor in the atmosphere, you can dump that out as large precipitation, large rainfall, large snowfall. So sometimes people say, well, there's been, a, you know, you get 30 inches of snow in DC. That must mean, as Senator Imhoff said, that there is no global warming. Just because an event happening in one place doesn't make sense. But on top of that, it doesn't make sense because we actually expect that a large precipitation events should be increasing in number. And that's what exactly what's happening. I'll show you a little bit of evidence for that. As a result, we're getting increased risk of floods in certain parts of the country, particularly the Midwest and Northeast, where we're getting the particularly a significant increase in these large precipitation events. It's happening throughout the nation, throughout the world, even in the dry areas. When it does rain or snow, it's likely to be a larger event than it was. We're seeing an increasing intensity of, dr of droughts. I told you the way precipitation is being shown over the, uh, over, over the United States differs by region. And because of that, we're getting more droughts in particularly the Southwest and the Southeast. Because of the drying and the warmer temperatures in the West and in, in Alaska, we're seeing much larger in incidences of wildfires, more severe wildfires than before. Nothing about the number, but the, when you get a wildfire, it's more likely to be a larger one than previously. And, and many things that go along with that. We're seeing an increased intensity of hurricanes, in, particularly in the Atlantic. And um, all of those things are likely to continue. If I look at the large precipitation events, this is from the assessment. Um, if we look at the top 1% of the, of the precipitation events since 1958, we've seen a 42% increase in the Midwest, 55% increase in uh, the Northeast, and 16% increase in Alaska. All areas of the continental um, parts of the United States have, um, have seen an increase. Islands are a little more difficult because islands are so dependent on when a hurricane happens to hit them as to how much rainfall they get. And so they vary almost year to year in terms of trying to look at those kind of statistics. 
But extreme rain precipitation events are very likely to continue to increase, just as extreme high temperature events are likely to continue to increase. And a sad thing for me is our models are tending to underestimate the actual magnitude of these events, which makes me wonder if our models are just not good enough quite yet to, uh, to really t say just how bad things are going to get to be in the future. Um, it's one of those things we're trying to understand. I mentioned wildfires. Uh, the U.S. fire season is about three months longer than it was 40 years ago. And the average fire is much bigger, sometimes 1,000 degrees more and hotter. Um, they're not bigger in size, but also much, much hotter than before. In Alaska, even the tundra is experiencing wildfires. In recent decades, Alaskan wildfires activities have increased both boreal forests and in Arctic tundra. What's up causing the observed changes? I've already told you about the greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, and methane, um, that they are primarily responsible for the observed climate changes. I don't have time to go through all the different analysis we do to make that statement, but I can tell you, this is a key finding from the assessment, that for the period extending over the last century, there are no credible alternative explanations supported by the extent of the observational evidence for any, any alternative. Solar output changes in natural variability can only contribute marginally to the observed changes. In fact, over the last 40 years, the amount of solar output, which we measure very carefully from satellite observations, is actually decreased, not increased. So it can't be the sun. The climate just doesn't change on its own. It, it changes over periods of time because some, some forcing has affected it. And there are no natural cycles. You often see in the media, oh, it's just natural cycles. You know, we've had the climate change before, it must be a natural cycle. No, there are no natural cycles can explain this. Now, for having a, um, an ice age every 100,000 years, oh yeah, we have, <laughs> we, we have that evidence. That's because of how the sun goes, or the earth goes around the sun. But, but there are no natural cycles explaining this very significant changes we've seen, particularly over the last 50 years. If you look at the amount of carbon dioxide, I mentioned this is one of the important gases, probably the most important changing gas in the atmosphere. It has an atmospheric lifetime, has a rapid exchange between the atmosphere, the biosphere, and the oceans. But the overall lifetime of, of, of CO2 in that Earth's system um, and particularly in terms of if you add CO2 into the atmosphere, it's about 100 years. Its second lifetime is like more like four or 5,000 years, well over 1,000 years anyway. What we've seen uh, is a very significant increase in just what we've observed in CO2 amounts since uh, uh, Charles David Keeling started taking very accurate measurements in 1957. But we go back much further in time by looking at the bubbles that are trapped in ice cores. Particularly in Antarctica, we can take an ice core that goes back 800,000 years. If you see these ice cores, you can, really, you can basically see every single year. It's really amazing. Uh, and from those, you can pull out particular years, you can pull out the gas that was trapped in those, that ice and measure how much CO2 there was. And what you see is that when there was an ice age, there was about 200 parts per million. When there wasn't an ice age, it maybe got as high as 300 parts per million. Right now, we're about between 405 and 410 parts per million. We've had a 40% increase relative to what should be there in between ice ages. It should be driving a very significant change in the atmosphere. 
And in fact, if you went back to the last time we were at 400 parts per million, you have to go back three million years ago. And that was a much warmer Earth, with sea levels 60 feet higher than current sea levels. Um, it's kind of a scary thing, because it's telling us, in part, that CO2 really plays a big role in affecting the Earth's climate, but it also says what could happen over the coming centuries if we don't do something about this issue. Another way of looking at the issue is to say, well, what if we look at natural forcings on climate, only consider the sun? Volcanic eruptions would tend to cause a cooling because of the sulfur put in the atmosphere, turning into sulfuric acid and causing a cooling effect. Well, we find we cannot explain what's happened in the last 40, 50 years. You would have had a, expected almost no change, whereas, in fact, we've had this significant increase. But if I include those greenhouse gases, I include CO2, I include methane and nitrous oxide and some other gases that we have measured for quite a significant amount of time, and how much they've increased, we agree almost exactly with that observational record. You're listening to Addressing Alaskans on KSKA Anchorage, Alaska Public Media. We're hearing from Dr. Donald J. Webbles, an expert in atmospheric physics and chemistry. He's discussing the fourth national climate assessment and how those findings relate to Alaska. We pick back up with Dr. Webbles. If we look at precipitation, precipitation patterns continue to change such that we expect that the dry will get drier and the wet will get wetter. And uh, much of Alaska is likely to continue to see an increase overall in precipitation with more of that precipitation coming as larger events than in the past. But a continued drying of the west coast and the southeast uh, and continued issues there with, with drought. And even uh, in other parts of the U.S., uh, more significant concerns about drought, particularly in summer months, uh, including the Midwest. And I'm the son of a farmer, and uh, I'm always worried about agriculture. So um, that's, uh, I find very disconcerting. This is for um, late century, um, but it's similar, similar effects for, for, for mid-century, a little bit, little bit smaller. Switch quickly to sea level rise. Um, sea level rise is accelerating as we get not only warmer oceans, water expands as it gets warmer, but on top of that, we're getting this increase from the melting of ice and land ice particularly what's happening from Antarctica and Greenland, but also glaciers throughout the world. We've already seen about seven to eight inches. We can expect another one to four feet of sea level rise over this century. It somewhat may depend on which of those scenarios we follow, but we're not absolutely sure of that. It could be independent of those scenarios because we start the ice changing. We may be putting certain activities into place that are going to cause it to continue to change. Because of what's happening in West Antarctica, where um, there's and significant melting there, particularly in the ocean ice that is holding the ice in the mountains from the glaciers there from just falling into the sea, we can't for sure say there won't be as high as eight feet of sea level rise by the end of the century. Part of what we were trying to do in this assessment is put, do risk analysis, trying to say what's the risk for various likely events. 
So the one at four feet, we feel pretty comfortable about. We don't feel comfortable yet about what's going on with West Antarctica, but we can't for sure say it won't be as high as eight feet. On top of that, the oceans are changing in many different ways. I already told you about the changes in the circulation in the, in the Atlantic. Um, but the oceans are also acidifying. 25% of that CO2 that goes into the atmosphere is ending up in the oceans. As it gets in the ocean, it turns into carbonic acid. That acidifies the oceans, makes them less basic than they are. They don't have, their pH is still on the basic side, but they're being less basic. That's having an impact already in some places on shellfish and, and other life. What that means in the long term to the oceans is still unclear. How that's going to affect life in the oceans. The oceans are warming, but on top of that, the acidification effect is a big concern. Declining oxygen concentrations at some depths um, is also occurring along coastal areas, and uh, that is getting to be more of a concern as well. All of these have uh, all of these kind of impacts I've shown. This is a, so far, it's just been pure science. Already apparent in most parts of the United States and affecting important sectors, agriculture, health, uh, water, energy, transportation, et cetera. We're seeing that throughout the United States. We do know that as the temperature increases more, and with the top, this is uh, from an economic analysis actually it was done, that looked at different impacts, so agriculture, water resources, forestry, health, et cetera, um, based on how much temperature change occurred. And the temperature, the higher the temperature change, the larger the impacts. The more effects you're going to see on humanity and on ecosystems. We do know also that a changing climate exacerbates the stresses and risk we already face. We basically have three options. We can mitigate, we can reduce emissions of those gases. We can adapt, which means we can um, be more resilient, we can uh, reduce the adverse impacts on, on society resulting from climate change, or we can suffer. Right now, we're doing some of all three. What's up for grab is the future mix. Mitigation alone will not be adequate. The changes in climate are just occurring too rapidly, and you cannot eliminate the emissions rapidly enough. Adaptation alone would also be inadequate because climate is changing, temperatures, precipitation events, et cetera, are changing so rapidly that it's hard to adapt fast enough. So we need to realize that we need to, we need to do this through risk assessment. We need enough mitigation to avoid the unmanageable and enough adaptation to manage the unavoidable. I do want to leave you with a sense of hope. As I said, this is kind of depressing. Um, our future does depend on how we act to limit climate change. We need to recognize that adaptation does require a a focus on managing risk. But I also believe that we can draw upon our long history as human beings of responding to the changing conditions around us in facing this challenge and that we can do something about it. If we look at what can we do, about a third of the overall cause of the emissions is because of transportation, a third of about from our energy use, and a third from other uses like agriculture. 
and forestry and other things. In our own households, we are emitting based on roughly those kind of things. The food we buy, the energy we use. We can be more efficient in what we do. Even a simple thing like changing from incandescent light bulbs to the new LED light bulbs makes a big difference and, and really reduces the requirement for energy. A lot of other little things we could do as well. And most importantly, you could send letters and emails to your congressmen and senators and tell them why this is really important, this is something we need to be worried about. A number of studies have looked at various mitigation pathways. Many of them are win-wins, uh, all those on the left, below zero, where we save money by, by saving energy. Some require new technology, new battery systems, new, perhaps new ways of doing solar or, or other uh, renewable energy, but none of them are excessive compared to the potential impacts. There are many ways to adapt um, by preserving, enhancing green infrastructure, preparing hospitals, transportation systems for heat waves, um, developing crops that are resistant to some of the changes we expect to see, et cetera, et cetera. Many of these are win-win. I'll leave you tonight with one quote. Sir David King, um, uh, someone I knew very well, former head of uh, chemistry department at uh, Cambridge University. Um, I met uh, Sir David when he was the um, science advisor to one of the UK ministers, uh, prime ministers. He was actually the science advisor for two different prime ministers. Um, and a few years ago, Sir David said something that really hit me hard. Climate change is, is not just the biggest challenge of our time. It may be the biggest challenge of all time. And we need to really take this seriously. Thank you all for listening to me. I appreciate it. And I'd be happy to address any questions you have. Yeah, my name's Craig, and earlier on, you, I don't doubt that you have an explanation for this, but how did you determine the temperature rise over the past 2,000 years? Was it through looking at the Arctic ice or Antarctic ice, or how, how was that actual temperature Yeah, I didn't explain that very well because I just didn't want to take time, but it's based on a variety of different proxies. Um, things like the, the analyses of, of ice, but it's not just that. It's, it's uh, looking at analysis of ocean sediments, land sediments, uh, tree rings is an important one, um, uh, analyses of coral reefs, and, and should you go back in age with coral reefs. Um, there's a whole variety of them all over um, uh, the uh, um, northern hemisphere particularly, not as many in the southern hemisphere. They're trying to increase now the number in the southern hemisphere. But these proxies tell, give us a good idea of what temperatures were like over that time period. And these are down to um, not quite the annual time scale, but, but close to it. We can go actually go back over the last 25,000 years um, by looking at other records uh, going back to the end of the last ice age. Um, and uh, and it, you know, it generally appears that 
likewise, this period is, is the warmest on record. Uh, here? A question about the permafrost. Now, as the permafrost melts, and uh, instead of just little tundra plants, we'll start getting trees and bigger plants up in the Arctic. Is that, does that offset the effect of the rising methane by absorbing more CO2? It could if there was enough of that. Uh, scientists, you know, this is where you're getting into biology, and as, you, as my wife will tell you, that's getting dangerous territory for me. But <laughs> she's shaking her head, yes. Uh, the, uh, but um, most biologists think that the, the melting is likely to cause more emissions than you're going to take in, even if you can grow more uh, other types of plant life in that in those regions. And I don't I don't know what the possibilities for growing plant life in 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 those regions are. Yes. What are some of the things that you're most excited about in terms of either technological or social changes that we can do? What uh, what's what turns your crank? What what would you recommend <laughs> for us? Well, um, I'm trying to put my money where my mouth is. <laughs> We're in the process of putting solar on our own house. And, I th you know, and, we, and we have learned that the payback on that is 12, 15 years or so. And uh, hopefully within our lifetimes, we will see, uh, uh, you know, to the point where it, it's, it's earning money for us. You know, we're not going to pay for energy, for electrical engineering from, from now on after this is put in this fall. Um, Solar is getting to the point, and wind power are getting, is getting to the point, where they are so inexpensive compared to other energy sources that it really makes a whole lot of sense to greatly increase the amount of both. Um, one of the analyses I've seen recently suggests that solar and wind power will become cheaper than natural gas as the cheapest forms of energy. Uh, this year, end of this year or sometime next year. Uh, so uh, we already know natural gas is much less expensive than coal, but, um, but here we, we have an impact. If we can go to renewables, whether it's solar, wind power, or, or perhaps making better use of ocean waves or other sources, uh, as well as geothermal, or even nuclear, they don't cause air pollution, which is the other thing. I, was, I developed one of the first air quality models when I was at Lawrence Livermore National Lab. Um, we can largely eliminate air quality problems, air pollution problems, asthma problems. Uh, and I think that's kind of exciting. Uh, so we can solve, largely solve uh, what's going on with climate change. If we could transition rapidly enough, we're going to slow it down. We're not going to completely prevent it. Um, but we could largely get rid of our air quality problems. Uh, and uh, other countries are seeing this too. You know, I get told all the time, oh, China's uh, um, continuing to build coal-rigged power plants. Well, that's stopped. China has, is now transitioning. In fact, they, this summer, they almost did it too rapidly. They started switching a number of their coal-rigged power plants to natural gas. and didn't have enough energy for their people to have air conditioning in Beijing at some points. Um, but um, they're trying to transition very rapidly, first to natural gas and then to solar and wind power. Um, 
and, and they're trying to transition their transportation systems. Um, their vehicles, their vehicle, their rules for vehicles are much stronger than ours by over the next 10 years. Um, and so um, I think we're starting to see the, the verge of a revolution in how energy and transportation is done worldwide. And I find that really exciting. It seems like the scientific community has done a wonderful job of figuring all this out and projecting what can and will happen. And the failure maybe has been more on the political end and people actually doing anything about this, people who are capable of it. So I'm kind of, I kind of tend to think things are going to get a lot worse before they get better because nothing's really happened yet. Science is there, maybe the technology is very possible, but if we don't, if we, you know, if our political system isn't having it, well, it's not going to get better. So my question is, if things really do go south, and say we do have this three degrees centigrade change in um, temperatures that signifies a huge change, you know, loss of coastal areas, huge weather pattern changes. What I wonder is, if at that point people say, huh, okay, no more CO2, we're gonna really change, how, how does our climate rebound? Can, can the Earth recover once the damage is done? We're still trying to talk about preventing yeah. damage, but I wanna know, can it rebound if we don't prevent if, it? If we could develop geoengineering technology, I'm not a believer that we can develop technology where we can just eliminate the warming by putting up reflections in the stratosphere. And I think there's too many problems with that. But perhaps eventually we'll develop technology where we can remove CO2 from the atmosphere or remove it before it gets into the atmosphere from the various emissions we are making. Then we can do something. Otherwise, I already mentioned to you that the carbon dioxide, methane has a very short lifetime, 10 years. Um, a little, little bit longer, but not much more. Um, nitrous oxide has about a 100-year lifetime. It's not changing quite as much as methane and CO2. But CO2's second lifetime is thousands of years. And so in three or 4,000 years, we're still going to have 15% of the CO2 we're putting in the atmosphere beyond, left there beyond what was there naturally. Um, so we're leaving a long-term legacy, and that is really a concern. Now, maybe that technology will develop where we can do geoengineering to remove CO2 from the atmosphere, but right now it's just too expensive. And we have some technology, it's just that's way too expensive. You cannot uh, possibly um, have enough air atmosphere go through a device, that, even if you put up thousands of devices, uh, to, to remove enough to matter. Um, so. So we got to come up with better technology if that were to occur. But otherwise, we're leaving a long-term legacy, and that's and it's really an issue, really a problem. You know, I do worry. You know, I often will say, you know, you know we have uh, three sons and five grandchildren, and I, I really worry that you know, 50 years from now, my grandchildren are going to look back and say, "Gosh, I know my dad worked, you know, my grandfather worked on this, but what were they thinking back then?" You know. Um, because I, I'm really afraid that we're leaving uh, a tremendous problem to, to those that come after us. You, you touched on my question a few minutes ago, but 
uh, people talk about geoengineering and technologies for taking carbon out of the atmosphere. And I was wondering what the role of basic technology such as a tree can have, like massive reforestation and that sort of thing. Massive reforestation can certainly have an impact. I wish I knew the numbers in my head for just how much impact that could have. That cannot eliminate the problem, I know that. Um, uh, and some people have implied that. But, but I don't know exactly. You know, that's why I said something in order of a third. That's kind of what I remember. But I wouldn't want to be held to that because I, I don't know the number very well. Uh, but it would really have to be quite massive uh, in order to achieve that. So thank you again. Thanks for listening to Addressing Alaskans today on KSKA Anchorage. We just heard from Dr. Donald J. Webbles, an expert in atmospheric physics and chemistry. He discussed the fourth national climate assessment and how those findings relate to Alaska. This talk was recorded at the Egan Library in Juneau on September 7th as part of the University of Alaska Southeast's Evening at the Egan Lecture Series. If you missed part of this show or would like to hear more, head to the Addressing Alaskans page at alaskapublic.org. For Alaska Public Media, I'm Ammon Swenson. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, just go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Learn more about Addressing Alaskans and listen online at alaskapublic.org. Life Informed. This is Alaska Public Media.